If you recall the account of Jonah, it begins with Jonah the prophet running away from God's calling. He got on a boat and he sailed in the opposite direction that God called him. And so God sent a storm, of course, to, to turn him around. And it threatened to break the ship apart. And the other sailors were fearing for their lives. And so it says in Jonah 1.5, Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. What I find interesting here is that over these thousands of years, nothing has changed. There's nothing like a little calamity to force men to call on their God. We often live like we're immortal or invincible, but when God touches your health, when you get sick, when you maybe even face death, you're ever so quickly reminded how fragile you are, and this realization brings out a cry from your heart to God for help, because in your heart you know God is there and he can deliver. Same thing happened with King Hezekiah, 2 Kings 20. He became mortally ill. And if that weren't bad enough, the prophet Isaiah shows up to confirm it. And he says, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Can it be any more blunt? But that caused Hezekiah to turn to the Lord in prayer, and God heard and God healed him. Not all people so rightly respond to sickness, though, and to the, the face of death. Some people get sick. And turn to God, others get sick and turn away from God. Were not these two extremes represented in the account of Job? As you know, one day Job lost all of his wealth, all of his servants, his ten children, and his own health. But how did he respond? Job 1.20 says that nonetheless, he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All he could do was trust God and that's what he did. But not so for his wife. Don't forget, she suffered too. We often forget that. Those were, that was all her wealth she lost. She lost all of her servants as well and those were her ten children that she likewise lost. But what was her response to her suffering? We gather her response from her counsel to Job, Job 2.9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Just curse God and die. And in saying this, she was merely reflecting the own response she was having to her suffering in her heart. Just, it's over, forget about it, just die. I trust it's a no-brainer to you as to which of these two is the right response. But that's not the end of the discussion because it's easier said than done. The right response to sickness. And so today, our aim is to further explore this issue, the right response to sickness. Now, if you weren't here last week, you're going to be a little bit lost, so I'll try and get you back up to speed real quick. Last week, we did a message on the relationship between sin and sickness. And that whole issue was spawned by our study of 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul established a connection between sin and sickness. Specifically, the Corinthian Christians so abused and mocked the Lord's Supper that he says that many of them were weak and sick and a number even dead. Which means God had disciplined them for their sin through sickness. It's a pretty stunning revelation and it brings up a ton of questions, none of which we had any time to answer that that sermon. So we came back last week with more of a topical study to do just that. Basically asking, what is the relationship between sickness and sin? Does sin cause sickness? Sometimes, every time? 
Does the Bible teach that every time you get sick, it's because you have sinned or not? And why would God do this? Isn't he supposed to be our healer? Or is all sickness the work of Satan? Even still, why would God let that happen? All these questions. And last week, we spent all of our time seeking to answer these questions from Scripture. We found that Scripture teaches a very clear balance. That yes, there is some connection between sickness and sin. I mean, in general, all of our sickness and even death, it's tied to sin, the sin of the fall, the curse after the fall. But even in specific, there are many instances of God inflicting sickness as a form of discipline or judgment. So sometimes, yes, there is a direct connection. But other times, no. Meaning there's not always a connection between sickness and sin. There are just as many instances where people get sick for reasons other than personal sick. And similarly, every time you get sick, it doesn't mean you've sinned. So there's this balance where your sickness may be tied to your personal sin in life, but it it may not. There are, in fact, many other reasons God allows sickness in our lives. And we also covered this last time. We, We covered five in particular, five major reasons God allows sickness. Number one, to judge unbelievers for serious sin. Number two, to discipline believers for serious sin. Number three, to bring unbelievers to salvation. Number four, to bring believers to Christ-likeness. And number five, to magnify his power, glory, and grace. So there's actually many reasons God allows sickness in the world. Some tied to specific sin, others not at all. What makes this tricky, though, is we often can't tell which reason applies to us, meaning you often don't know the cause of your sickness. I'm not talking physically, I'm talking spiritually. We don't have eyes to see the causality between sickness and and God's perspective and God's plan. So maybe you break your leg in a car accident, you're in the hospital, you're suffering, you're saying, why God, why me? And maybe through your witness in the hospital, God is going to bring five people to salvation. Or maybe he wants you to pray more and to trust him more. Or maybe he is disciplining you for some serious sin. Or or maybe not. But the thing is, we usually never know the specific reason for our sickness and suffering. And it's that lack of certainty that often confuses Christians as to now how to respond. So what, what are we supposed to do if we don't know why we're sick? I mean, we're talking like a spiritual reason. How are we to respond? What, what is that right response look like, even when we don't know the potential spiritual cause. And that's what we aim to find out today. Last time we we talked about what the Bible says about the relationship between sickness and sin. And now we're coming back to, to focus on what the Bible says about the response to sickness and sin. And hopefully this will help you achieve the right balance and perspective needed to ensure that you have the right response Like last week, this would be more of a biblical survey, so we're jumping around to a lot of places, but to help frame this discussion, here are five ways to rightly respond to your sickness. Five ways to rightly respond to your sickness. Number one is to trust God. To trust God. I never said it would be earth-shattering news or, or necessarily new to you, I know that most of you know that a huge part of the right response to sickness is to trust God. But it still bears repeating because, again, it's easier said than done. It's very easy to to show up 
visit someone in the hospital and say to them, you know, they're sick with something and say, you know, it's, I know this is really difficult, but you just got to trust God through this time. You just got to trust God. It's a whole different thing, though, when you're the person in the hospital bed and someone tells you, you just got to trust God. That's when the real test comes. Do you really trust God? Do you really count and hope on him? Even if you don't know why this is happening to you, will you be one who will still rest and trust in God or be among those who doubt, even curse God? Well, first off, you need to be absolutely convinced that trusting God is the right response to sickness or any affliction for that matter. So let me explain that. What is trust? Trust is a firm belief in the reliability, truth, or strength of something. So to trust God means you, you are convinced he is supreme, all-powerful, good, and he's able to save. And from this, you can see how trust is fundamentally related to faith. What is faith but trust in God's promise to save? And how is it that we come to please God and to even know God by faith, by trust? They're, they're necessarily or essentially one and the same. So, of course, in all things, this is the right response to trust God, to believe in him. Certainly when it comes to your sickness. It's when, you, when you're weak, when you're afraid, you're calling God to deliver. That's what he wants. So we hear from David in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. He says, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I've put my trust. I shall not be afraid. Now, like I said before, it's still easier said than done. It's easy to say when you're nice and healthy. Yeah, of course I trust God. And when I get sick, yeah, I'll I'll trust him. But when that day comes, like I said, there's the real time of testing. So what can you do now to grow in your trust of God? How can you trust him more? Well, your trust in God is inextricably linked to your belief in God. Specifically, your trust in God is linked to your belief in his sovereignty, his love, and his wisdom. Through these, you come to know that God's in control, that God is good, and he's working all things out for the good. And as these three strands weave together in your mind, they form an unbreakable rope of trust. So to grow in your trust of God, then, it's as simple as growing in your, in your knowledge and belief in God's sovereignty, love, and wisdom. And that's as simple as just turning to Scripture and really believing what it says. For there God has revealed his sovereignty, love, and wisdom. So just by way of a simple refresher, let me jog your memory. First, consider God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is his rule over creation, and his rule is complete. As we learned last time, God's sovereignty extends over the good and the bad, even sickness, even death. God says of himself in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, he says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there's none who can deliver from my hand. It's all in his hands. We love to think that God's in charge of health, and he is, but he is equally in charge of sickness. It's not a natural thought. The mind of man, the mind of natural man, does not like to think that way or think of God that way even. 
But scripture makes too clear God is supreme. He made all things. He rules all things. And he does as he pleases. This is not to say that God is evil or does evil. He's not. But he is sovereign over it and he allows it for his greater purposes. We think again of Job. God did not afflict Job directly. He didn't cause him to get sick. Satan did. But as you learn in Job 1 and 2, Satan could not have laid a finger on Job if God did not give him permission. And that's still a form of control, is it not? It's still who God is. And if you want to trust God in the midst of your sickness, which is the right response, then you need to similarly come to terms with a sovereign God who's in control of your sickness, which just means he has a purpose for it. There's a reason he has allowed whatever is happening to you. Now, you may not always know the exact purpose, like we established last week, but at least you know things are not out of control. You know you're not a victim of chance or circumstance. You're still in God's hands. And that is meant to give you peace and comfort. Now, resting in God's sovereignty, that's good unless God is not good. In other words, there's nothing nothing more terrifying than a sovereign God who's out to get you. If that were the case, then, then it's all over. Forget about it. But thankfully, God is good, and his people need to likewise be convinced of his love for them, that he does want their best. So secondly, consider God's love. God's sovereignty, second, God's love. Just be simply reminded that if if you're in Christ, God is for you. It's true. If God is against you, you have nothing but fear. But if God is for you, you have nothing to fear. After all, God already gave his son Christ to die for you, to eternally redeem you. So if you're in Christ by faith, what what are you afraid of? What do you have to fear? Are you afraid of dying? Well, look, you're going to die either way, right? Pretty sure you're still going to die. But at least in Christ, you know where you're going. Do you doubt God's love? What more, though, can he do to convince you of his love than by sending his son Christ to die on the cross for your forgiveness, which he already did? And so Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So again, though you may suffer, though you may get sick, you have nothing to fear. And that reality is meant to produce in you trust and peace and hope and comfort despite your sickness. Finally, you can grow more in your trust of God as you become more convinced of God's wisdom. God's sovereignty, God's love. Third, God's wisdom. God knows what he's doing. His ways are higher than our our ways and, and he is working things out for the good. His ways are best. Imagine you're, you're pregnant, you're in labor, you need someone to rush you to the hospital, and if you had the choice, who would you want to drive you? Option one, a 15-and-a-half-year-old kid who just got their learner's permit. Option two, a NASCAR Sprint Cup champion winner. Well, you're probably going to go with option two. See, it's one thing to be in the driver's seat. It's another to know how to drive. And thankfully, God can do both. Thankfully, even though God is in control, he's also perfect in wisdom, and he can order all things for the best. 
Because again, it would be truly terrifying to have a God who's in control, yet he's a fool. That would be bad. But we can rest in the knowledge that he possesses perfect wisdom. And even though we can't see this, he's able to work out life's tangled web of circumstances and events for his glory and for our good. And so Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We cannot always fathom God's judgments or his ways, but we can simply come to trust in him that, that he's in control, that he's good, and that he's working all things out for the good. We gave the example of Job last week. How about Joseph? Joseph is another perfect example of all this coming together. I mean, talk about a life of suffering. And he didn't do anything bad to deserve it, per se. But he was betrayed by his brothers, almost killed, sold into slavery, beaten. And then just when things were looking up, he gets wrongfully imprisoned. So imagine that's you. That's your life. You're sitting in the jail cell. And you'd be having all these questions like, why am I here? What what did I do to deserve this? God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you letting this happen? Where are you? How can you possibly use this? How could this possibly fit into your good plan? Joseph in jail had all those questions and no answers. All he could do was just trust in a sovereign, loving, and wise God who's going to work all things out for his glory and our good. And that's what Joseph did. Only later, in hindsight, was he able to see God's purpose in letting all that bad stuff happen to him. Because through it all, God put Joseph in a place where he was later exalted in Egypt, and he was able to save the lives of thousands of people, including his own brothers who tried to kill him from that famine. And so later, he was able to say to them, Genesis 50, verse 20, he says to his brothers, As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. All this evil and suffering and sickness happened to Joseph and people did it to him, but God meant it all for good in the end. And he preserved many alive. Joseph, though, he didn't realize that in the jail cell. He only realized that after the fact, we don't always get such moments of clarity in our time of sickness. God's purposes in our sicknesses, our sufferings, may not be revealed until we're dead and gone. But this is why God gave us scripture, that we might see his character, that we might see his sovereignty and love and wisdom in action in the life of someone like Joseph, that we can come to simply trust him, that we don't know how We're getting out of the jail cell. We can just trust that he's sovereign and loving and wise and he's going to work it out. This is, again, still easier said than done. But the chief right response to your sickness, or any affliction for that matter, is to simply trust God, to count on him, to depend on him. Far from causing us to lose our faith in God, sickness should only drive us closer to God because he is our only refuge and strength. In him is perfect peace and rest, so just trust in him, even as you're sick, and experience his peace and rest. So this is the first 
way and the chief way to rightly respond to sickness. Let me give you number two, a second way to rightly respond to your sickness. Number two, examine self. Examine self. What do I mean? Well, I'm not talking about a, a physical examination, but a spiritual one. You know, when you get sick, you go to the doctor, and that's all good and, and well. But one of the big points we established last week is that your sickness may be tied to your personal sin. It may not, but it may. God certainly reserves the right to wield sickness as a form of fatherly discipline on his wayward children. So how should you respond to that? Well, by examining self. Again, that's what God did for those Corinthian believers. Remember, they sinned against the Lord's table, so he inflicted them with sickness. In response to that, Paul told them to do two things, to judge the body and judge self. To judge the body rightly, that means they need to rightly understand what the bread and the cup of communion represent. But then he says to judge the self, which means examine yourself. Search your life for hypocrisy or hidden sin before God. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 11:28, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, while judging the body, that pertains only to the Lord's Supper, judging self, that, that's for everyday life. That's for everyday Christian life. The self-examination where you're searching your life for hidden sin or hypocrisy, that's always a good thing. That's a purifying thing. And given that your sickness might be tied to sin, it's part of the right response. Again, picking on Job a bunch here, but James tells us that Job is an example of blessed endurance. And you recall after his suffering, his three friends show up to counsel him. And they believe in what's called retribution theology that they think Job must have done something so bad. He must have so much sin in his life that that God gave him all this suffering. It's got to be his fault. So they accused Job. That led Job to genuinely examine himself. As you read the middle chapters, he's searching himself several times, looking for hidden faults, asking the Lord to acquit him. But that's a good thing, though. Such self-examination, that's a holy response to sickness because maybe you have sinned. David did the same thing. He covered up his sin of adultery for a while. That actually led to a form of sickness and suffering in his life. And so he says in Psalm 32, verse 3, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. He was depressed because of his sin, and rightly so. It wasn't until he was rebuked for his sin by another that he finally examined himself, realized he'd been in the wrong, and repented. And as he repented, God graciously restored him. And so verse 5 he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And this, of course, this is the purifying effect of sickness, which oftentimes that that may be why God is allowing the sickness to, to make you holy. God knows oftentimes there's nothing as good for your holiness like sickness. Nothing will cause you to pray and seek God more than sickness. Can you not affirm that in your own personal example, your own personal life? 
when you get sick or maybe a loved one gets sick, do you find yourself praying less or more? You pray more, oftentimes a lot more. All of a sudden, you get very holy, very serious about prayer. You even get serious about sin in your life too. Sometimes that's why God allows the sickness. Now, here's the thing though. We already established last time. We often though don't really know that the spiritual cause behind our suffering, if any. So how does this really work? Well, when you get sick, it's not wrong to examine yourself every time just to check, to look for hidden faults, to, to search for any hypocrisy or, or sin you've been clinging on to. Who knows? Maybe God is disciplining you for sin through this sickness, or maybe not. But either way, as you examine yourself, it's going to result in your holiness, and that's, that's a good thing. That's what God wants. Now, what if you, you get sick, so you're like, oh, did I do something? You examine yourself, and you find some sin in your life that you, you've known was there, but you've turned a blind eye to it. What do you do? What if, through sickness, God opens your eyes to some sin in your life that you've been secretly harboring? Well, obviously, repent. Turn from it. God promises to graciously forgive and restore you every time, and through your repentance may also come healing. And praise God for that. What if, though, you find sin and you repent, but you're still sick? You don't get healed. Or what if you you search yourself, you don't find any really sin, and you're still not healed? Maybe like Job. You know you're not perfect, but you examine yourself and you don't have any hidden faults. There's no hypocrisy. You can't see anything. But your sickness remains. So, so then what? Well, obviously, you're sick for some other reason, many of which we explored last week. But I'll tell you what. At least now, you can suffer with a clear conscience. At least now, you can be sick knowing it's not for some wrong you have done. And trust me, it's far better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what is wrong. Isn't that one of the, the big points Peter made in, in 1 Peter? 1 Peter 3.17, he says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. And then in 1 Peter 4.19, he says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Notice both times he mentions your suffering in accordance to God's will. But it's better, in that case, to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for your sin. You see, sometimes you suffer sickness not due to personal sin. You're cleared, so to speak, but your sin remains. In this case, God has obviously willed your sickness for some other reason, but at least now you can suffer to the glory of God. This is a fallen world. You're going to get sick. You're going to suffer. Jesus even promised us suffering. But if God so wills, at least you can glorify him in your sickness. And you do that how? By trusting him. Like Peter says, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You just you can't control things, but you rest in the knowledge that God is sovereign and, and loving and wise And he knows what he's doing. And even if his will is for your sickness to remain, like with Paul, you will trust him still and you will praise him still. And that's that's the right response. That's what Job did. His sickness remained for quite a while. 
But even still, he said this, Job 13:15. He says, "Though he slay me, I will hope in him." He says that of God. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Can you say that? That's that's next level trust in God. Are you there? Can you say that? This is all part of the right response, though, to sickness, from trusting God to examining self. Third, to pray. To pray, of course, we can't exclude prayer from the right response to sickness. But you can probably see these are all intertwined. These are not separate responses. These are basically all different parts of the one response to sickness. You trust God, you examine yourself, you pray, all at the same time. And after all, is not prayer the chief expression of trusting God in your sickness? So pray. You can turn to James 5 or or listen along. James chapter 5. We can't really have a discussion on how to respond to sickness without going to James 5. He, He tells us straight up how to respond to sickness. And you see, all these things come together from trusting God to examining self to praying. They all come together in James 5. Really critical passage, verses 13 through 16. James 5, he says, Is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Then he is to sing praises. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. For many people, it's a challenging passage to interpret. But some things are quite clear here. What's very clear is whether you're suffering or sick, the right response is to what? To pray. He says prayer in every verse. Either you pray or you call on the church leaders to pray. Later, he says, pray for one another. So everybody's praying. The picture is someone who's weak or sick, and they're just being surrounded by prayer. Why? Because prayer is effective. Because God wants us to pray. He tells us he heeds the prayer of faith. And the, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Now, I don't have time to tackle this passage in depth. I'll just briefly mention, I think most people make one of two mistakes when they come to this passage. And that is either to assume that the sickness and healing here is all physical, or to assume the sickness and healing here is all spiritual. But as you study more, you find it's not so much an either or, but a both and. Because remember, God made us physical and spiritual beings. And he is our healer physically and spiritually. And he wants us to pray in faith for such healing physically and spiritually, which is part of the right response. Mentioned earlier, King Hezekiah's response to his sickness. He gives us the perfect picture of how to respond to sickness. He didn't know why he was sick and dying. All he knew is God was doing it because the prophet Isaiah told him, this is from God. Nevertheless, how did he respond? He turned to God in trust and in prayer. He cast himself entirely on God. That's what sickness does. It will bring you low. But if it causes you to turn to God, good. And so 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 2 says, Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, 
Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He also examined himself. But realize this is what God wanted. True faith, a response of faith expressed by prayer. And in this case, God heard and God healed. And so through Isaiah, God told him, verse 5, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Here we actually learn God's greater plan in Hezekiah's sickness. It's revealed. First, God wanted Hezekiah laid low, that he would come to to trust God and entirely cast himself on God, come to the end of his own rope. Then, when God healed him, he would know this this is only God, and he would give God all the glory. But even bigger, God was going to deliver all the Jews from the Assyrians, and when that happened, when that deliverance happened, the king would know it wasn't by his might nor by his strength. He did not accomplish this victory, but God did. And God would again get all the glory. You can't escape, though, this depiction here of a big, sovereign God who's got big plans and big purposes, bigger than any individual. Sickness and health, life and death are in his hands. Hezekiah, he'd get 15 more years, but no more. For us, we don't always know God's hidden purposes like this how he's working out his plan in our sickness. Yet we see in Hezekiah the right response. And that's all we are to do, to pray, to cast yourself entirely on God in humble dependence. Now it's true. Sometimes God says yes to that prayer of healing. Other times he says no, or not right now. As we've pointed out several times, Paul prayed to the Lord earnestly, repeatedly, to remove the thorn in the flesh. And God said, no. But that doesn't change the fact that his prayers were the right response. He still did what was right. And in Paul's case, sometimes in our case as well, God leaves the sickness, lets it remain, that we would come to depend on him even more than we could have imagined. And that's why Paul was later able to reflect in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and says, and God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And that word for weakness is the same word James uses for sickness in James 5.14. James says, Pray for such sickness, such weakness. And that's what Paul did. Yet as the sickness remained, instead of cursing God, He depended on God more, that God's power would shine through his weakness and his sickness. And that's that's the right response. Now, a quick side note here. There is so much more to learn about sickness and prayer and healing from James 5. It's just so much. It's a critical passage, so much so that I've decided we'll come back next week and go through verse by verse this passage in James 5. Why? Because I've always wanted to preach on James 5, and I'm the preacher, so I get to kind of make those calls every now and then. 
Hopefully we'll find more clarity then. But for now, before we finish, let me briefly add two more right responses. Number four, real quick, take medicine. Yeah, take medicine. How do you respond to sickness? Well, we'll include medicine. I want to squeeze this one in here briefly just for balance because every year you hear in the news there's some Christians who, you know, some parents, for example, they refuse to administer medicine to their child as if God can't heal through medicine, as if his healing has to be supernatural and not through natural means, and then the child ends up dying. And, of course, it's, it's tragic and foolish because God is just as sovereign over the means as the ends. And Scripture fully endorses the use of medicine to heal sickness. Medicine is a great grace given to the world. And if you want proof, just think back to Hezekiah. We just talking about Hezekiah. He was mortally sick. Do you know what his sickness was? It was an ulcerated sore, like an open flesh wound. And if that gets infected, you're done for. But as you know, through Isaiah, he prayed. God said, I will heal you, right? I'll give you 15 more years. Remember all that? How did God heal him? Well, the next verse, which we didn't read, 2 Kings 27 Then Isaiah said, take a cake of figs, and they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. That sounds strange, but actually it was common medicine back then. It's it's called a poultice of figs, kind of grind it up and apply it on a wound. It was a very common ancient medical remedy for sores and, and open wounds, and it worked. So the point is, though, God brought about Hezekiah's healing with a very common medical treatment. God certainly can heal supernaturally, and many times he does so. There's no medical explanation. But that doesn't villainize medicine. Even Paul traveled around with Luke, who was basically his personal doctor. Luke was a physician. And Paul was beaten and bloodied so many times, he needed an on-call doctor to travel with him all the time. And Luke administered to Paul's need. Let me just overall reiterate here. When it comes to these responses to sickness, it's not either or. But both end. It's not either trust God or take medicine, but rather both trust God and take medicine. We don't hope in medicine. We don't place our hope in the doctor. Your hope, your faith, your trust must be in God alone. But realize God works through human means oftentimes. And so gladly accept any treatment possible. This is something I trust you guys all already know, but nonetheless, it's a necessary reminder. Finally, a fifth right response to your sickness. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. This is an appropriate place to end like we did last week, and it's an appropriate overall response to your sickness to to look to Christ from Hezekiah to Paul to us today. God often purposes our sickness that we would take our eyes off of this world and gaze upward toward him, toward heaven, and chiefly toward his son Christ. Remember, Jesus suffered first. Not sickness per se, but he nevertheless suffered far more than we can imagine because of our sin. And we too, we suffer ultimately because of sin, the sin of the fall. It's a fallen world. We're living in the consequences of that. Yet in your sickness, look to Christ, who lived yet died, who suffered yet rose victoriously. And in him we have life. Christ is our ultimate redeemer, our ultimate healer, body and soul. It's a whole package. He redeems us holistically. 
In this life, there's no promise to escape sickness. You will eventually get sick and die. But even as we suffer in this life, God draws us closer into into what Paul calls the fellowship of Christ's suffering, knowing he went there first. This is where our Savior went first. And through this, God draws us to a special place of worship, a place you could not get to apart from suffering. You might know people they have gone through profound suffering, yet they just seem to know God more than you. They're closer. Their worship is pure. This is what God often does through our suffering. Sickness is like fire. It melts away everything that doesn't really matter in life. So when you get that phone call from the doctor that says you have cancer, all of a sudden, your vacation plans don't really matter anymore. Your 401k doesn't really matter. That crack in the bathroom wall doesn't really matter. Relandscaping your front yard doesn't really matter. Very litter, very little matters anymore. All that's left are people and God. And concerning God, it leads to a pure knowledge and worship of him. How often we, we live and come before God so distracted by the things of this world, things of this life. We're more occupied with this life than the kingdom. We easily live as if this is our permanent home. We're very happy here. But there's nothing like sickness to set your eyes heavenward. It's like being doused with ice water. Sickness is a stark reminder that, nope, this world, this is not it. This is a fallen world. This world is not my home. This world is not my hope. Our home is in heaven with Christ, our Redeemer. And if sickness causes you to set your mind on things above, well, good. Praise God for that. In contrast to those who set their minds on earthly things, Paul says, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Like we learned last time, right now, our bodies are in that humble state. And they won't be redeemed until he comes back or we go to him. We're still fallen. We're still prone to sickness. Along with this entire world, our bodies are are going down. But look to Christ, who redeems us, body and soul. And when he returns or we go to him, he will bring us to a place where there's no more sickness, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain nor death. And if, especially if you're in Christ, you have to make this your hope. And really, that, it's your only hope. What else is worth hoping in? So set your mind on this. When sickness comes, and even when sickness remains, let it merely melt away all that doesn't matter in life and purify your worship of God who gives us eternal hope. So when you get sick, ultimately don't lose heart but look to Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are 
eternal. We don't see Christ right now, but look to him. Set your mind on that which is not seen, and he will bring with him the glory that will be ours as well. Let's pray. Our great and gracious God in heaven, we, we praise and exalt your name this morning for you are sovereign, you are loving, you are wise, and we can trust in you. You're our rock, our refuge, our strength. What else can we place our trust in? Health, not going to last. Wealth also will not last. There's nothing in this world that will last except for you and your promise to save through Christ. You've already sent him to redeem us. What more can you do to convince us of your love for us? That if we would merely trust in him and count our lives as his and fling ourselves upon the rock of Christ, we too would be saved and redeemed. We glory in this redemption. We have to make this our hope as we trust you and pray. And even as we get sick in this life, and we will, this will be a life in the end of suffering for all. Yet we will trust you, Lord. We will purify ourselves from any sin. We will pray and ultimately set our hope on Christ. Lord, we pray you come quickly. We long for this finished redemption of our bodies as well. Until then, Lord, may we have this right response that when we get sick or suffer, we still glorify you by looking to your your son Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.